that once that happens, unless you get treatment for it, this will start getting worse. Hey everybody, welcome back to episode 7 of The Squad Room. I am your host, Garrett Teslaw. I am an active duty police sergeant with the Sheriff's Department in Southern California, and I'm the host of this little experiment. The Squad Room is a podcast devoted to optimizing the physical, emotional, mental, environmental, and occupational health of wellness of law enforcement officers and first responders all over the world. I came up with this idea for this podcast because I needed to search for some answers to help improve my life and my lifestyle. I needed to lose weight get better sleep, have better relations with my family and friends, and feel like a normal human being most of the time. Something that's not always easy to do in our profession, feeling normal. So, I came up with this idea. I am a 10-year veteran in my department, most of my time on patrol, but I've also held assignments in gang enforcement, courts, and in community resources, or arts and crafts as I like to call it. I'm the father of two young kids, ages 6, soon to be 7, and 3, soon to be 4, and I have my hands full. I'm on night shift right now, and life is miserable because of it. Well, that's not true. It's not miserable, but it's tough. So we're trying to tackle some of the things that we have to address because of the way we do things and the way that we have to live our lives. We have a very important episode today, and I don't want you to fast forward through this because it doesn't sound like a fun one, because it's not, but it's important. We can't always make it alone. Many of us have been through a critical incident or something on the job that stays with us. And it's not just returning veterans and military personnel that are susceptible to things like post-traumatic stress. We also have to be aware of the fact that we, first responders, peace officers, are on the front lines and that we see things that nobody should have to see in their life. We experience things that nobody should have to experience in their life. And we signed up for that. And we know that. And we were prepared for that. But you can't prepare for how you are going to react. You might think you know how you're going to react or how you'll deal with the situation. But you don't know until you go through it. And then, sometimes, it's too late. So, to combat that, what we need to do is know how to ask for help. And the first way to know how to ask for help is to know what symptoms, to know the signs. Now, this may not relate specifically to you, but hopefully today's episode will help you identify some of the things you might need to recognize in a partner or in a friend, someone who is going through something and they need help. And maybe my hope is that today's episode will help you identify some of those red flags that will prevent something horrible from happening either to yourself or to a partner or to a loved one. So today's episode is largely about post-traumatic stress. Our guest is Dr. Joel Fay. He is legit. Dr. Fay was an LAPD officer and then he lateraled over to San Rafael in the Bay Area and he was there for many years until he uh, went and got his degree in psychology and he is now a counselor and he uh, specializes in treating law enforcement. I first met Dr. Fay a couple years ago when I went through the crisis intervention training and he was one of the speakers and one of the instructors. He gives a great presentation in that class and he reiterates some of it on today's episode. 
He runs a retreat for responders and spouses of responders who are dealing with post-traumatic stress or who have suffered through a critical incident. He has the right perspective of someone who has done this job and understands this job more intimately than most any other psychologist or psychiatrist could ever possibly know. Because of that, I trust him explicitly and implicitly. So please listen to today's episode. Like I said, don't skip it. It's important information. We'll have a lot of resources and contact information within the show that you can use to reach out for help if you need it. As always, you can always reach out to us. Our email is squadroompodcast at gmail.com. Our Twitter is at the squadroom. Same for Instagram. You can subscribe to the show to get more information on iTunes. If you do like the shows, please leave a review on iTunes. Uh, It's very helpful for us to get the word out on important topics like today. So here we are with Dr. Fay. Uh, Dr. Fay, thanks for joining us. My today. pleasure. Um, you are a, poli- a, psych- well, a psychologist, right? And you specialize in uh, treating police officers and first responders, right? That's correct. So, um, so that our audience knows uh, that you've walked the walk that you talk uh, in your practice. Can you tell us a little bit about your history before you uh, decided to go uh, uh, and pursue psychology? Sure. Um, I was a police officer for 32 years. I retired a little over four years ago. I worked in the military. I was a criminal investigator with the criminal investigation division. Then I was with LAPD, and then I was with the San Rafael Police Department. Had a bunch of different jobs from investigator to, you know, patrol, FTO, on SWAT for 11 years, hostage negotiator, peer support member. And for a long period of time, what I did was work with seriously mentally ill people and help them get out of jail and into treatment. And now part of your training is that you teach a crisis. You were part of a crisis intervention training, yes. right? Which is becoming more and more popular. And As police departments are getting sued, as, <laughs> as you know, police officers are getting hurt, and as we're hurting mentally ill people, it's becoming increasingly popular to provide officers with some understanding of how to work with people in crisis. And since joining, or since, sorry, since... Uh, pursuing your degree in psychology and, and focusing on police work, what are some of the things that you're doing now uh, from your practice perspective? Well, I have a private practice where I treat emergency responders, not all, but 90% emergency responders. It also seems about 90% of it is uh, post-traumatic stress-related treatment. I also have I'm the clinical director of, the, of, of a program I helped start called the First Responder Support Network. And we have two programs. One's the West Coast Post Trauma Retreat, and the other is SOS. SOS is Significant Others and Spouses. So through WCPR, we treat emergency responders for PTSD. It's a six-day residential program, and SOS provides similar but different treatment to spouses of responders. Okay. So um, maybe we could talk about some of the st- what are some of the stresses that you see. That first responders face. I mean, we all know some of them with, um, you know, juggling the lifestyle and all that. But what are the what are the manifestations that you see in your practice? Well, it's this. Well, part of it is responders are, are just like everybody else. So they have good relationships. They have bad relationships. They are doing fine financially. They're filing for bankruptcy. So like everyone else, they have sick parents. So there's all those stressors. 
Then there's the additional stressors of working a job assignment where while statistically it's not the highest risk profession for uh, for being killed in the line of duty, it's really the only profession where if you die, you're dying most likely because someone deliberately killed you for what you do. So you go to work with that understanding and your families know you leave to work with that understanding. That's a tough one. That sounds big. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot to carry. It is. Um, is that why we, I feel like we're so susceptible to stress or are there other environmental factors or uh, training issues that, that make us susceptible to that? Well, I think, I don't know that we're more susceptible to stress. I actually think as a, as a class, we are much better than the average person out there. You know, in order to become a police officer, you have to have a psychological screening. That screening, which is done by psychologists who really have been trained to do screening for officers, uh, in, you know, you have to be found free of defects is how the, the it's worded. <laughs> but it's a lot about the culture, that within our culture, getting help is seen as a weakness frequently. Now, I think that's changing. I think there's a new culture that's really been forming. But it's but for many, many years, and still now, it's like if you say you need help, what's wrong with you? Why can't you, you know, pull yourself up? Why can't you make this work? So as a result of that, I think we wait too long to get help. Hmm. So then, and then we have the stressors of responding to calls of, not, not everybody tries to kill you, but um, unfortunately that doesn't happen very often, but you see a lot of bad things, whether it's a traffic accident, kid dies of SIDS, uh, child abuse, or just somebody's home is burglarized and they're totally upset about that. You see all of those things repeatedly you get exposed to more levels of trauma, more types of trauma in just a few years than most people have in their lifetime. So uh, maybe this is a good point to ask you to define what PTSD is or post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. So, well, first I'd like to refer to it often as post-traumatic stress injury because when I say injury, it means you can recover. Mm -hmm. We've all been injured from something and then we get better. So when you say post-traumatic stress disorder, which is the technical name for it, that sort of indicates like you'll never get better, like schizophrenia. You know, once you have it, you're screwed the rest of your life. Yeah. And I don't believe that's necessarily the case. I think you could recover. I don't think, depending on how severe the PTSD is, you may not have a complete recovery and that it's gone, but you can get a lot better. But it's a series of symptoms. There are 20 current symptoms for PTSD. There are, uh, of those 20, they fall into four different categories. And you need six symptoms. It's way, there's one in one column, one in another, and then two in two. So you need six out of 20 symptoms for a PTSD diagnosis. And um, while there are some symptoms that everybody has, there are some that are, that some people don't get. The more severe, the more symptoms. I, I was going to add, you, you stole my follow-up question about the Perfect. disorder, the D in disorder, because what little I know about it, it seems like that your body's response to that stress is appropriate. Like right. to, to suggest that it's a disorder would suggest your body is out of order in how it responds to that stress versus right. that's the normal way that your body responds to those things or your mind. Yeah. Um, okay. So I like that. It, um, not to get off topic, but I, like I, I was diagnosed and I've talked about this before with uh, shift work sleep disorder. Mm-hmm. 
And I thought that was sort of a ridiculous diagnosis because that's I, I'm tired and fatigued. And I'm cranky. Right. That's exactly what my body's response should be to being right. tired and sleeping during the day instead of the night. So, okay. What so, do they do for you have to just sleep better? You, you just to, sleep better. Yeah. <laughs> There's not much to do. Maybe yeah. some Ambien, but yeah. I hate that stuff. Yeah. Um, so can post-traumatic stress, we'll call it that if that's mm-hmm. all right. Post-traumatic sure. stress, can, can that be... The military we that has certainly brought this more into mm-hmm. uh, the, the national discussion, um, and the fact that the military uh, personnel are, are dealing with this on such a heavy level. But often we hear about it as um, you know a result of an IED explosion or a gunfight or a specific event that they had to go through mm-hmm. that caused this. Can PTSD be? Cumulative over the course of a career, not any one specific thing, but like you said, just kind of going to these traffic accidents and the SIDS and the burglaries and all those. Can that, can that cause PTS, post-traumatic stress? So the way the DSM works, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the way it works is it says you can get PTSD in one of three ways. You have to be exposed to either death, actual someone actually tried to kill you or threatened to kill you, someone actually tried to hurt you or threatened to hurt you, someone actually tried to inflict sexual assault on you in some way or threatened to do that to you. And you have to have one of those three things happen in one of different ways. So one is it could happen to you, so someone tried to do that. It could happen, you saw it happen to a friend, someone tried to kill your friend. It happened to someone you love or what they call uh, repeated exposure to aversive details of an incident. So like sex crime investigators, CSI investigators, people like that. So that's the DSM perspective. The way I look at it also is that's true, but then the other side of it is that it is cumulative. That officers can absorb and absorb and absorb trauma, not just officers, but firefighters, everybody, uh, responders. But then it reaches a point where your psychology can't absorb any more trauma. That's the cumulative stress, excuse me, cumulative stress effect. So it can't absorb anything else, and it reaches that point where you just start to have a reaction. Unfortunately, when you have a cumulative stress reaction, it comes out very in a very uncontrolled way. So you're thinking, you know, you're driving home and you had a call that wasn't terrible, it was all right, a little screwed up. And then you start to cry, or you have a panic attack, or you're terrified about coming back to work, and you don't even understand, why would I be terrified about coming back to work? Why does the thought of walking into that department, which I've done 10,000 times, why does the thought of that scare the hell out of me? And maybe you do it anyway, because you know you, you, know, you man up, so to speak, and you go in and you do it. But once that happens, unless you get treatment for it, this will start getting worse. And so you can look at it as as a cumulative stress reaction, but also sometimes the event is so significant that you can have it in one incident. For most responders, it's generally not one incident. There might be one truly horrific incident that just happened, but they have a history of other events as well. Hmm. Okay. Um, What are some of those, you you mentioned the the kind of anxiety or panic attacks. Are there other things that or red flags or identifiers for people? Well, it uh, well, it just depends on how they it go they go at it. But um, certainly, anxiety is a big one. Depression's another one. Um, nightmares, um, difficulty sleeping, which are some of these the main symptoms of PTSD. 
but you're afraid to, often like you'll find officers are afraid to go to sleep at night because they are afraid to have nightmares so they'll drink a lot and they hope that they pass out from you know they drink enough so they'll pass out and they won't have nightmares that doesn't work but they'll try to do that um, irritability at home you have trouble concentrating there are like so many different things that you see you know, you can't get the thought out of your mind or it comes back to you all the time this repeated like um, not exposure but um, remembering of the events intrusive memories that you can't stop all of those things are kind of add up and everybody's PTSD looks a little different but the net effect is you're not living your life in a healthy way you're not functioning well and you're miserable Sounds like it. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, what are some of the different uh, treatment options? If someone decides that they're checking these things off their list mm-hmm. as they're listening to this or as they're researching it, um, you're uh, you're a psychologist, right? Mm-hmm. And um, what are the uh, what are your treatment options, or what do you do? And um, I think because and I'm asking that because I think there's a predilection towards fear of of, of bringing this up because. They think you know that's that automatically means you get put on medication right. and um, the rubber gun squad. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, what's interesting in some agencies, if you go to the agency and you say, "I believe I have PTSD," or "I went and saw a therapist, I have a PTSD," some of them do. They they do react to it inappropriately, and they just sort of okay, we take away your badge and ID and your weapon, which I think is a ridiculous. You only do that if there's a reason to do it just having a diagnosis doesn't mean you automatically do that hopefully agencies are getting smarter with that the um, I think the best thing you can do to stay psychologically healthy is to stay physically healthy Uh, the exercise I think is vitally important there are so many reasons why exercise helps and you think okay I don't like to run fine work in a garden do yoga uh, go for walks um, there's so many things you can do to stay healthy and being outside I mean there, there's the benefits of you have in the endorphin rush you have oxytocin gets released if you exercise you increase the serotonin in your brain there are so many reasons to exercise so if you maintain a good you know healthy exercise program they recommend about two and a half hours a week it will help you psychologically because you will process things through if, and, and you do that whether or not you have PTSD. You should do it your entire career and don't give it up because you have PTSD. Keep doing it. Then, you know, you can talk to friends. You know, talking helps. You can talk to friends. You can talk to a chaplain. You can talk to a therapist. There are lots of different ways to talk. The difference is that a therapist will talk to you in generally based on theory and science to try to help you recover. So there are different strategies that therapists might use. You probably have heard of things like cognitive behavioral therapy is a real uh, big name of type of therapy out there that works very well with PTSD. I personally do a lot of EMDR, which is, stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And that's a technique for reducing the emotional impact of a memory. Very effective with PTSD. You'll hear people talk about prolonged exposure or um, another therapy, it's ART, A-R-T, and I just can't remember what that stands for at the moment. So there are lots of different therapies that people can use to help a person recover. What works for one person may not work for another. Peer support is an excellent thing. It's like nothing like sitting down with somebody who's been where you are 
and to offer and to just to talk about what happens and how you're feeling and to normalize those feelings for you. So there's a lot of kind of therapy you can do. And yes, medication is, you know, when, when you think of PTSD, it's on a continuum. It goes from people who have PTSD that come into work every day, do their job, function pretty well in life, but are struggling a little bit. And they, you never know it, they just show up and do their job. And then you have others whose PTSD is so severe, we can't get them to leave their home. Somewhere in the middle of that is kind of a line that once you cross over that line, you really need medication. You know, I always tell people misery is optional. You get to decide what it is you want to do, how much treatment you want to engage in, but it's, but I will tell you everything that I know that will help get you better. You get to decide. So I might tell you, you know, you need to stop drinking a bottle of wine a day. That's not going to help in your recovery. You can choose to keep drinking. You could choose to stop. I might say, you, you know, you should really be on medication. You can choose to take that or not. You should be in therapy. You might choose to do that or not, but I will give you the choices. You get to decide what you want to do. Hmm. Okay. Um, what are some of the other f- mental or physical, again, the, the word disorder I have here, but the disorders related to stress or shift work that aren't PTSD that you might see mm-hmm. in some of your patients? Certainly depression, definitely. Um, and anxiety as well. Um, but depression, I would say, would be bigger. Uh, and, and often people with PTSD are often diagnosed with depression as well. PTSD is an anxiety disorder. So saying you have PTSD and anxiety, it can be a little redundant, but you can have PTSD with panic attacks or PTSD without panic attacks. That, that can vary. Um, and then, you know, sort of generally, is a, it's not a diagnosis, but sort of you're not thriving. You're not having a good life, and I hate to use that Kaiser, you know, thrive. Mm-hmm. But you know, if you have a decent job, you're making good money. Your, you know, your your work has meaning. You have a family that cares about you, and you're just not a happy person. You got to wonder why is that happening? And sometimes when you're exposed to this corrosive nature of responder work, you just kind of decide everybody's an idiot. You know, there's no good people out there. It's us against them, and you sort of develop this mindset that isn't helpful and if you get sucked in excuse me if you get sucked into that that can be problematic I uh, this is obviously a, a rough time uh, to be a peace officer mm-hmm. nationwide yeah um, there's a lot going on and there's a lot of that um, I think that attitude is becoming more pre- pervasive because mm-hmm. it's easier it's easier to go feel that way that you know people are idiots and that it's us versus them and mm-hmm. it's easier to feel that way than it is to go to work every day optimistic and to try and see the the silver lining so to speak yeah. i guess what are some of the do you have any recommendations or things you give your clients to to maybe combat that on a daily level or just on a uh, practical level in their in their lives it's a tough one and right now you know with everything from baltimore and north carolina and I mean, just all over the country, there's these, you know, law enforcement's really being portrayed in a negative way. Um, that, you know, one of the things I say, it's not, um, it's not scientific, but I believe it, is you got to have a lot of friends outside of police work. If you only hang out with police officers, you're just constantly exposed to that negative st- stuff. You know, you go to a barbecue with a bunch of cops, they're all going to start telling stories about things that happen at work. 
you want to go to a barbecue with people that know nothing about police work. So you talk about, you know, the, the sports, or you talk about what's going on in the community. You just, you know, talk about some stuff in the news. But, you know, it's the stuff normal people talk about. Mm-hmm. And I think the more friends you can have outside of the police world, the healthier you will be in the long run. Um, things I'm exploring as part of this project, too, are things like uh, that I found maybe in line with this uh, gratitude journal mm-hmm. and just writing down a daily, Absolutely. you know, what I'm thankful for or what I think went well that day or what could have been better. Mm-hmm. That's probably the best one is what could have been better is the mindfulness of uh, how to improve maybe. Um, do you uh, see people uh, applying stuff like meditation? There's a, a, you know, a lot of talk now about the use of meditation within law enforcement or within the treatment of trauma. But I know when you say meditation to police officers, they think of somebody sitting in a room with, wearing a yogi mm-hmm. outfit and long hair with their legs crossed right. uh, or something. But that's, I guess that is a form of meditation, but, that's, but you can just meditate while you're going for a walk. And that it just means just to think about things, focus your mind on something you're interested, on something that makes you happy. I had an officer tell me the other day, he, he takes time every day to think about what makes his heart smile. That's just a great image, you know, when I think about a heart smiling. Mm-hmm. I also I, I encourage folks that when you wake up in the morning to think of three things you're grateful for. Now, you don't have to do this every day, but it's just kind of a good reminder. And, and not too long ago, I was in Africa and went, you know, did the safari thing, and it was amazing. But when I came back from Africa, part of my three things was I have electricity. I, I don't know hunger. Mm-hmm. You know, that I will get up in a minute and I will take a shower and clean, safe water and then have a cup of coffee with clean, safe water. You know, that that's just amazing when you consider the size of Africa and how many people in Africa don't have that. So I would wake up and think about that. I'd wake up and think about my family. I, you know, wake up and think about, you know, I have a job that provides me with meaning in life. Those are all things to be really grateful for. And then when you go to bed at night, think about three things specific things that you're grateful for that happened today and not big things things like um, when you were trying to get over on the freeway and it was really busy and someone slowed down and let you in so you're grateful for that Uh, you had a really nice dinner tonight so you're grateful for that you spent some time with your kids on the sofa watching some television show and they were snuggled up next to you you're grateful for that and why I like doing that this exercise first in the morning it forces you to think about things you're grateful for so you don't get out of bed thinking the world sucks. And then throughout the day, you have to think about what are those three things I'm gonna be grateful for today? So you're looking for things to be grateful for. And often people will just, you know, they, they bypass those things. They just look at the things that piss them off. So if you go to bed and you say, okay, yeah, today these three things happened and I'm really grateful for that, you go to bed in a better mood. Nothing is a cure or fixes everything, but it does shift your focus a bit. Yeah, I met your your attitude goes where your mind is, right? Yes. So, yeah, um, and your behavior follows. And your behavior follows, sure. Um, you mentioned uh, physical fitness as being uh, important. Are there other things that officers or any first responder can do in the self-care department? Uh, could be nutrition or anything else. Well, I'm not, you know, I'm not one big on nutrition. Uh, <laughs> I know it's a good idea. You know, a friend of mine, I do a lot of bicycling, mm-hmm. and a the motto is eat to ride, ride to eat. So because I bicycle so much, I can eat a lot. Yeah. And, and I 
I'm lucky for that. But I do mind it. You know, I, I try to keep my weight to a reasonable level. Um, but certainly nutrition. What really gets cops in trouble more so is drinking. And I'm not one that says, you know, you can't drink. You know, alcohol is fun. You know, you feel good when you have a glass of wine or a cold beer tastes great on a hot day. And it's fun to do it when you're socializing with people. But if you do it to control, to manage your life, that's a problem. So if the only way when you come home, the only way you could like not be Mr. Grumpy and sit around the house and, you know, and, and participate is to have a few drinks, yeah, you got to kind of wonder about that, that that's, the alcohol is now becoming a crutch. That becomes a very dangerous road because mm-hmm. it can cross over into being a dependency. So just be mindful of that. And if you're one of those folks that is an alcoholic, then not drinking is really important because you'll never, you know, my, I know there's different perspectives, but if you truly are an alcoholic and your life has been harmed by the use of alcohol and alcohol was out of control, it's a very rare individual that can go back and drink responsibly. Mm-hmm. We talked uh, with my coach, I call him, uh, in episode two, I think it was, of uh, my identification that um, I was in a habit of, uh, you know, coming home from work. And this, is, this is if I'm working day shift. We work rotating shifts, so this doesn't apply really to night shift. But I work day shift. I've been out in the hot sun all day, and I, you know, get that vest taken oh, off, and you that feel that great ah, feeling, right? Yeah, you know that. Uh, get home, and I got two young kids, right? And um, of course, the minute I hit the door, I'm in dad mode and in uh, and in husband mode. So there's my second job I've mm-hmm. talked about of, of getting dinner made and uh, the kids to bed and kids bathed and books read and homework done and that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. And it kind of, I've talked how it kind of sends me right back up after I've kind of calmed down mm-hmm. from here. Um, and that I got in this habit of having a, a beer or two or maybe three uh, as what I th- what I suspect to be my way of kind of down regulating I was mm-hmm. calling it you know um, that that helped me supposedly I say I, I felt like or I thought that it was helping me calm down from the end of the day and uh, be able to kind of shake off all that stuff and, and maybe just mellow out mm-hmm. you know so I wasn't so jacked up Mm-hmm. From because uh, I always thought I handled the day to day stuff pretty well, but um, it was just a. It's kind of nice to treat have a treat at the end of the day, mm-hmm. and that treat, of course, was a beer. But also, uh, uh, seemed like I was trying to use that to just kind of downregulate a little bit, you know, and, and never to the never, uh, you know, I think imbibing like too much. But as mm-hmm. we talk about from the fitness perspective, of course, that stuff accumulates and right. You add that up over the week, and all of a sudden you've had X amount of beers, and that's a lot of extra calories and mm-hmm. all those other things too. Um, so I, I'm just wondering if people who might listen and say, "Well, yeah, I, I, I drink at the end of the day, but I'm not an alcoholic." I mean, mm-hmm. every, everyone immediately kind of backs away from that, and because that's a scary label. word, yeah, like a scary label. But there is a gray area too. It seems uh, between maybe a someone who doesn't drink at all and, and gets home and exercises does an hour of yoga and some meditation and is uh, calm and zen mm-hmm. versus the guy who hits a case of beer every night there's mm-hmm. a there's a gray area there In that between. people need to be aware of too right yeah there's a guy named Gabor Mate who wrote a, a really good book and it's called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts which is a Buddhist term 
He's a psychiatrist in Canada. That's a Buddhist term about addiction. And I like the way I th envision that. It's like a hungry ghost will keep eating everything. You can never satisfy a hungry ghost. And if you truly have an addiction, you can never satisfy an addiction. There's not enough alcohol in the world to satisfy your addiction, that you would finally drink that last bottle of beer and you go, well, that's it, I'm done. I've had enough now. You will keep doing it. And he has a great question that he asks people, and I like it. It's, if given the harm you are doing to yourself and others, are you willing to stop? Whatever the behavior is. And if you're not willing to stop, you have a problem. And then it's up to you to decide if you want to stop. Whether mm -hmm. it's alcohol, gambling, sex, whatever it is, it's your choice. Interesting. Uh, I'll post uh, a link for that book in our, mm -hmm. in our show notes, too. Um, a topic that's commonly talked about, too, is maybe we're talking about stress, um, stress inoculation. Mm -hmm. Is that even possible? Yeah. How? What are the what are the best ways or the best practices for inoculating yourself from stress? Well, first it's about training. Understand what you're experiencing. Um, understanding that, like, what is PTSD? What is cumulative stress? To recognize when you're having the reaction. If you're having a reaction but you don't know what the reaction is, then you won't do anything, generally you won't do anything about it. It's a general, sort of general way of looking at it. But if, you, if you've gone to a class that talked about PTSD, and then you realize, wow, you know, all those things that guy was saying in that class, I'm having some of those things. Then you know to get help. So inoculation training, it tells you, okay, if you see these things, go do something about it. Then the other part of it is inoculation training tells you what to do before you have these things happen to you. So exercise, you know, things we're talking about, eat well, you know, have relationships. Do things that make you feel good about you. Do things that make your heart smile do all of those things because that's going to counterbalance the bad stuff and I, you have to do those things I don't care what job you have but you got to do those things anyway just to maintain a healthy attitude about life so it's about letting people know that this is to do this work particularly responder work you have to be an active participant in your own sanity in your own recovery mm. you can't just sit around and wait you know, and just say, well, I'll, if something bad happens to me, I'll do something. You know, cops are good at going to the gym and working out. In general, people like to stay in shape. People, cops are good at running because they know if I get into a fight, you know, I need to uh, be in good cardio shape. I got to outlast the person I'm fighting. Well, I say the same thing psychologically. You got to know that if you get hurt psychologically, you want to be in good shape, have all these good resources in place that you're able to bring in support to help you get better. That's what stress inoculation is it teaches you that it's not again no magic cure it just says this is what you should be doing and if something bad happens this is what you should like out for is uh mental rehearsal or mental training like going through critical incidents in your head before they happen like if this happens my response is a if this happens my response is b that kind of thing are those helpful or do you think those are just bringing up fake traumas i don't think they bring up fake traumas it's not an area really that i deal with it's more of that's part of a training area but i know that doing that fats you know the, the what do they call firearms simulation yeah, the, program the video the video right the shooting at the video those things are helpful like you know we know that if but if you go to the range and you have a cup of coffee in one hand and you fire a couple rounds and have another sip and fire a few rounds you're not really training under stressful conditions 
but you go to the range and you have to run, engage multiple targets, things like that, you're going to be better prepared to respond to real stress in, in your life, high stress situations. So we do want you going out there and, and, and doing those, you know, those activities. Um, so I don't know if that answered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it seems like there's a lot. Yeah, I mean, the, the range is probably the best example of going out and trying to emulate a stressful environment. Right. And that seems to make sense for wanting to be able to function under those mm-hmm. stressors. Right. And it's also, it doesn't hurt to say if I walk up on a car and the driver pulls a gun, I'm not going to freeze. I'm going to run to the back of the car and I'm going to get away from the line of fire. Um, and then pull my gun and, and return fire. Um, it doesn't hurt to play that in your mind. I don't think that's traumatizing. That that's that's you're sort of rehearsing what you're going to do in that moment. Um, nothing wrong with that. Okay. Um, have you had success with officers returning to work after treatment or during treatment? Absolutely. The vast majority do return to work or never even stop working. Um, you know, they just continue on their job or they they need to get a little time off, they get a little tune-up, they're able to go back to work. Unfortunately for some officers, whatever that level of trauma is, they just can't go back. Um, I've seen it also where officers have, you know, people talk about officer-involved shootings. Actually, the number one reason that call that, that cops, the number one category of calls that I believe affects op- responders are calls involving children. Mm-hmm. Then it's officer-involved shootings. And, um, but I've seen officer-involved shootings where the officer has killed somebody, and basically at that point, they, they don't want to ever kill anybody again. They don't want ever to be placed into a position where they might have to shoot somebody. They don't want to be required to take somebody's life. Um, you know, they kind of have PTSD, but really what it is, it's a moral issue for them. They simply cannot shoot anybody anymore. And, you know, they can't, they just, cannot be a police officer at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, you touched on it at the beginning saying that uh, you thought PT as post-traumatic stress was becoming more acknowledged, more accepted as a, mm-hmm. as a real issue, but also as a manageable issue. Are you seeing more departments uh, accepting of this or handling this more appropriately? And what are some of the things they might be doing that are, that are best practices? Well, I'm, it's getting... I see it getting better, but this is a big country, and it goes from departments that are like San Francisco PD is incredibly supportive. They have a very active peer support team, very active critical incident stress management program. They have an entire unit, I think it's four or five officers that do nothing but work on the mental health of their officers. If they have a drinking problem, they help you get into treatment. Very progressive. And then you have other agencies where people will do absolutely nothing. They don't believe in peer support. They don't believe in debriefings. So it really varies. But I think best practice is having a really good peer support team. And, and by the way, peer support, people think, oh, you get an officer-involved shooting, peer support shows up. You know, I don't know how many officer-involved shootings Santa Barbara Sheriff's Department has, but I'm sure you're not, you don't have a dozen a year. It's a very small number. And so peer support's role Overall, for officer-involved shootings, it's a very small part of what peer support does. Peer support is there when your kid is sick, when your parents are ill, when you're going through, uh, you know, you're losing your home, you know, for one reason or another, you know, when you didn't get that promotion. You know, all the things that we go through in life, peer su- that's what peer support does. And then 
when there's an officer involved shooting, they can show up and help people at that point too. But that's you know one percent of what peer support can do. Seems that um, if you have a, pro, a robust peer support program in place, that it might actually prevent a lot of these things because they do feel that um, community and the tension and mm-hmm. and the that's it's interesting. Um, well, like Alameda County Sheriff has a very uh, you know a, a very active peer support program, and those guys and gals are out there looking for people who are hurting before it affects their life. They're picking it up. They get, you know, the people saying, you might check in with so-and-so, he's not doing so well. Or I think this guy's got a problem. You know, they have, you know, the joke, like for San Francisco PD, the joke is there are 1,700 informants on the San Francisco Police Department. You know, they're all the cops. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, inform the stress unit who they think is not doing well. And that gives the stress unit a chance to try to reach out and help those folks. So that's... You know, that's a robust way mm-hmm. of working with them. And you're right, you intervene before the, you know, it becomes a problem and then it's easier to treat. And a liability issue too for the department, if they're able to identify sure. an officer who may be, have a rage problem or, or, or might be on a short fuse, right? get them treatment and help before they before have a use of force. Before it makes the news at six. Right. Yeah. And they pay a million dollars in a lawsuit. Absolutely. Yeah, and it becomes a very expensive program right. you don't have. That's right. Hmm. Exactly. Um, if we have some department leaders listening, uh, what are some of the things they can do to try and bring this back to their department uh, or to, to implement wellness or peer support systems? There, so, it's so easy to do, in, in Cali- particularly in California. Uh, Post has a number of, of uh, peer support programs that are approved. I, I teach one of those uh, programs, but there are others. It's easy to create a peer support program in your agency. Uh, you know, I think that you need to lead by example. Um, you know, to single anyone out, but uh, uh, Sheriff Ahern from Alameda County uh, Sheriff's Department. You know, I've been involved working with Alameda County for a while, and every critical incident that I've responded to where he has been a part of it, he's there leading the way. He's there telling people, you need to take care of yourself, you need to get help, you need to support, you know, your family's number one. He doesn't just, my understanding and talking to, well, and talking to him, but in talking to the people who work there, is he doesn't just talk the talk, he walks the walk. You want to convince people that it's important to take care of your family, then you have to show that you do that. You have to show that you take care of yourself, so you have to show that you do things to take care of yourself and let people know you care about them. And whether that's the sheriff, the captain, the lieutenant, it's a, it's a organizational attitude, but it does start from the top. Uh, you mentioned taking care of family. Um, that was the next thing I wanted to ask you about was um, can family members, children or spouses particularly, be um, susceptible to post-traumatic stress because of an officer's mm-hmm. uh, event? Yeah, we call that vicarious trauma. Mm-hmm. And that actually is a category because it's like your husband or your wife was involved in an incident and therefore you have a reaction to it. Uh, well, you know, and at the trauma retreat, we started a, this SOS program I mentioned, and the first time we did it, it was about three days. The officers is six days. And so we did it for three days because we thought, you know, we'll bring the women in, we'll give them food, we'll let them talk about what happened. You know, we'll, we'll, it'll work out great. We'll just let them feel a little love. They'll be fine. We completely blew it. We did, we absolutely underestimated the level of trauma 
that was experienced by the spouse. So now the spouse program is the same amount of time as the officers. It's six days long, really? but there is a different focus. Whereas the officers, we have an AA meeting because it's more about the drinking. For the spouses, we have a, a alcohol, um, an Al-Anon meeting, which is more about codependency and what you want to do about the codependency issue. Uh, you know, for the spouses, we have time. They do meditation. They do some other things. We don't do that with the officers. You know, we figure that one fly very well. So we do a variety of, you know, it's different, but the level of, of trauma that they're exposed to is very similar. And because you, for you, it might be, I almost died, but I survived. For your spouse, it might be, wow, if he had died, what would I have done? We would have lost the house. Uh, I'd have to find, you know, let's say they're not working. I'd have to find a job. Or I'd have to work two jobs if we're working to make it, try to make it work. We won't be able to live in this area. You know, all, all these other factors that come in that they think of that, you know, you maybe don't think of as the responder involved in it. Um, it seems to me, too, that obviously a whole host of issues can come from that. And then marital problems. I mean, cops. Mm-hmm are notorious for a high divorce rate uh, um, and that not addressing those things might be the might very likely be the result by might be the reason why so many divorces happen well and statistically we don't actually know that police officers have a higher divorce rate than garbage collectors or lawyers I mean the divorce rate is high everywhere mm-hmm. um, what you add on to with police work is the shift work and that how officers can really fall in love with the job and so the job kind of sometimes becomes a mistress and in a way they love the job more than they love their spouse i mean it's just more fun at the job you have a great time you drive fast you get to do cool things you go home why didn't you take out the garbage or you told me you're going to fix this the other day or and that can become more problematic i always explain to officers that you need to maintain the relationship that at some point your career is going to be over. Maybe it'll be 30 years, maybe it'll be 10 years, you know, who knows, but at some point you're going to run, you know, you'll have to retire. The department will not be there for you the day after you retire. It's not their job. The contract the department had was that you will agree to come in and work 40 hours a week, you will perform these duties, and we will reimburse you in these ways. That's the contract. If beyond that you feel good about yourself, you have a lot of self-esteem, whatever that's great you got that but that that's not part of the deal the people that will deal with you after you retire when you're injured the folks that will be there day after day is your family you've got to put as much effort into your family and keeping that healthy as you do in keeping yourself healthy for the job that makes sense um i i I, I sometimes I think it's easy to forget the stress just the stress of just this job has mm-hmm. on spouses you know if the, and if they're not familiar with the job or if, not even that if they're just not in the job mm-hmm. um, it's easy to relate if your spouse is also a peace officer but um, it's easy to forget that you know um, for example after we speak tonight I go into work oh, yeah. and I'm going to work a, my 12 hour shift all night and um, that means that my wife is at home alone. Well, not alone, but she's home alone with two kids, right? And mm-hmm. she's got all that parental roles to herself mm-hmm. all night long. Right. In addition to once she puts them down, um, and she's had her, she works, she's had her long, stressful day at work. 
uh, dealing with her stuff mm-hmm. in a job that I don't understand versus the job that I have that she doesn't understand. Right. Uh, her, you know, her outlet of having someone to talk to in, in me is not there. Right. And um, it's a, I think it's important. I'm getting better at remembering that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's important for all for anyone who's got a spouse, not if they work or not, just the fact that if you're gone at night, that's not natural. And if you're right. gone on the weekends or on holidays and you're working, that's not quote unquote natural. Right. Um, because the vast majority of the population doesn't have to do that. Right. And there are plenty of shift workers in other professions that are gone those same hours. Mm-hmm. But when you add on top of it the stress stresses that we've talked mm-hmm. about and then this vicarious stress on them it seems like that um, it takes need, a toll it takes a toll and we need to be mindful of that but also mm-hmm. maybe spend some of our efforts on making sure that we support our spouses as well absolutely now that's my uh, high view of the mm-hmm. topic and I'm not always successful at that <laughs> but well, that's part of this project is trying to figure some of that stuff out too well the blue collar comedy guy that I forget which one it is but the one that says happy wife happy life mm-hmm. and, and, and when he says that in his thing people ooh, and he says you can boo me if you want but that's the truth and you know it and I think that's the truth having been married for quite a while I think that's absolutely correct yeah <laughs> um what are you, you talk? You talked about uh, the retreats that you've done, mm-hmm. and um, maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, first of all how to learn about more more about those, but also what those uh, retreats entail. Sure, the retreats are. Uh, you can learn about it. You can go on our website frsn.org. That stands for First Responder Support Network.org, um, and we have a lot of information online about our programs. But they are generally six responders that come from all over the country, other countries as well. They come out to the retreat. They spend six days from Sunday to Friday. We do a lot of work with them, a lot of education, a lot of therapy, and we help them process the incident. The goal of the retreat, I like to say it's a return to life program, not a return to work program. So if you're not working, our goal is not to get you back to work. Our goal is to get you back to life. And if getting back to life means you go back to work, that's cool, but that's not our, that's not our, our goal. Uh, and there's a lot of peer support at the retreat. People who have gone through the program can come back and help other people go through the program. So they create these peer, uh, this really wonderful peer support network with folks. And we have a, you know, probably 100 peers that come back and do that, and that's really an excellent part of the program. You have a pretty powerful video um, mm-hmm. that's on your site if, if you don't mm-hmm. mind us linking to it I'd like to post right. it on our site so we sure. people can get a sense of it um, yeah. and some of the stories that are told by those people with help life gets better yeah, yeah. it's uh, I've seen it a couple times but I watched it again yesterday mm-hmm. and it was just um, you realize that this is a legitimate issue and um, it's just a, it's a it's a matter of uh, chance whether I'm exposed to that trauma or the opposite shift is exposed to that. You know, it's mm-hmm. just a matter of rolling the dice of where I'm assigned and what I happen to be doing. If I'm at work or not work when the, when those major events occur, you right. know, we had, uh, we've had some national news quality, yeah, you did. traumatic events over the last two years, mm-hmm. um, that just, again, roll the dice. I would have been responding to had, uh, it been slightly just, just a different schedule or, a different day was picked for 
you know, for, by the suspect or um, I hadn't taken the day off. You know, it's so sometimes it's the fact you turned left instead of right. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's the way it works. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's uh, I think it's it's important for everyone to acknowledge that um, and understand that there are these people who are really um, truly suffering with this and um, doing their best and managing. But it's not like it's uh, oh that's those. That you know that guy had that problem, but that's mm-hmm. not me. Well, it's, it's, it's just a matter of chance that it wasn't you. That's right, um, and that's probably a little scary to actually accept and acknowledge. But it's important to do that. Well, what people when they particularly when they see people having a bad reaction, responders when they see them having a bad reaction to trauma, there's a tendency to say, "Well, that wouldn't be me. I wouldn't do that." My experience is that you have no idea what you would do. I don't care what you say. I don't care how macho you are. When you are getting your ass kicked by a critical incident and you are getting this intense psychological reaction, doesn't matter how big your biceps are, we all have the same brain and that brain can really you know, get affected and you have to be kinder to the folks that are experiencing that. For, uh, for anyone who's listening who thinks that they either, either thinks or knows that they need help or wants help, what's, what are the first steps that you would suggest, actionable steps for them to take today to, mm-hmm. to do that? Well, first, you can. most agencies have an employee assistance program, an EAP program that offers a certain number of sessions. You can start with that because it won't cost you anything. But find a clinician that knows trauma, knows the responder culture. Um, so generally, you get six or eight sessions. Sometimes you can get multiple sets of sessions. So see if you can find a therapist, go in and talk to that person. If the person you go into isn't the right person for you, it's not a good match, find somebody else. Uh, You can reach out and talk to, if you have a peer support team, talk to them. If you have chaplains, you could talk to them. Lots of folks, things that you can do. Uh, And you can always call the trauma retreat. You can call us and talk to us, even if, you know, we're not, you know, we're not trying to sell it to folks. It's something, by the way, we all volunteer for that retreat, so it's a it's a nonprofit agency, and we all volunteer our time. You can call; we'd be glad to talk to you and give you our opinion and some ideas of what to do if you're being overwhelmed. Do you think, um, for those that are married or have a spouse, that getting them on board or or talking to them first would be important, or should they maybe do the first two or three EAP sessions? You know, mm-hmm. kind of under the radar um in general i really encourage good communication with the family if you're going to therapy and you haven't told your in my case you haven't told your wife that's gonna be, i mean i think if she finds out i think the thing they'll think of is what's wrong with the marriage like are you trying to get out of marriage or so i don't mm-hmm. know i think they'll just go to that why wouldn't he tell me why wouldn't he tell me so i think if you say look i'm struggling at work i'm struggling with some emotions i don't know how to handle them um, so I, I think feel like I need to go in and get some help. My experience is the vast majority of spouses, like 99.9%, will say something like, good for you, I'm proud of you, go ahead and do that. Let's, I want to support you in your efforts. They will be there for you. Every once in a while you get an outlier that uh, just doesn't like the idea that you have to go in and get help, or I don't know what it is. It gets a little weird, but fortunately those are very few. Um, what are... You mentioned the phone number for the retreat. Mm-hmm. Can you give that out? Mm-hmm. It's 415-721-9789. And uh, the SOS program, is that on the same website? Yeah. If you go, we just redid the website. So it's frsn.org. If you go to that website, 
there are different um you can look it says like training programs you just click on those things and it'll take you to the different places uh any other projects that you're working on that you, that, uh, you feel people should know about? Nothing particular. I mean, I'm doing a lot of teaching, and um, and in the, with the between the teaching, the private practice, and the trauma retreat, I'm pretty much you're full. A busy guy. What's uh, you have a website? What's your website? People go oh, to. It's, it's not a very complicated website. It's very simple. It's joelfay.org, I think, or .com. Joelfay.com. Um, it's just a very very simple just because I knew people look you up on the web, so I had to create something, so I put it out there. Um, do you do the Twitter and the... Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I have no idea how to do Twitter. <laughs> I, I'm, I, I can Facebook, I can do that. Okay. Uh, this Instagram thing, I never quite got into that. So, no, I, I feel like my grandmother, I'm falling behind technology, and at some point I will have to call my grandchild over and say, can you show me how to program the, the clock on the VCR like my grandmother used to do, and... I'd go there and I'd, you know, I'd change it from, you know, daytime savings or whatever. I'd change it. And she'd say, you're so smart. How do you know how to do that? And I thought, no problem, Grandma. I know how to do it. And it feels like I am unfortunately falling into that because I just can't keep up with all the technology. I will, I will bet, though, as a, as a fellow cyclist, uh, uh, that yes. you know your technology about your bikes. I know that. And you have a very high-end uh, bike very computer high end that bike. you know how to function yeah, in. Yeah, I do have that. I have a high-end bike and a high-end bike computer. <laughs> you know how to run the GPS uh, Garmin, Garmin piece. Yeah, exactly. But, <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, you can't, you can't cop out too. No, not to that. To that, I keep up on that. But that's that. important. Yeah, it's very important. Carbon overlays and yeah. everything else, right? The, the, uh, the cycling keeps me sane. Good. Yes, that's a good one. Thank you for your time. Appreciate you coming by. Um, lots of great information and knowledge. I encourage anyone who feels like uh, they're at a spot where they need some assistance, um, look for those resources at your uh, department or in your area, or uh, shoot an email over to us even at squadroompodcast at gmail.com, and we'll try and put you in touch with someone. Uh, you can go to Dr. Faye's website or the uh, FRSN uh, website for more information and, uh, and get started on, on getting better. All right, thank you for listening to episode seven of The Squadroom. Please, again, if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us spread the word about the show. It helps us get some exposure on iTunes, and then pe more people are able to come and find out some of this information. If you are struggling, please seek help. If you know someone who's struggling, reach out and get a hold of them and help them out. That's our duty to each other. I hope everyone stays safe. Have a great week. Another episode is up next week with more great information. Until then, visit thesquadroom.net for some of our blog posts, some of our meal planning information. Uh, hopefully there's some stuff there that can help you out too. Always reach out to us. Shoot us a Twitter. Shoot us an email. Let us know how you're doing and keep us posted. All right. Thanks. Have a good week. Stay safe. Take care of each other.